The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the book The Future of Smart, and your host. If you just read headlines and social media, you might think that the challenges of adapting to the COVID pandemic played out pretty much the same way across districts and schools in the U.S. It turns out that wasn't actually the case. In today's episode, we'll be hearing from three guests who were involved in a project called What Made Them So Prepared? It launched in 2021 at the height of the pandemic. As the title suggests, the project aimed to figure out why certain districts, programs, and schools adapted better to COVID, why young people there were able to stay connected to each other and their educators, and why they were able to learn better overall than the vast majority of students across America. The hope was to provide insights into strategies that might help other schools and districts build back better after COVID. In the first few episodes of this podcast, we learned about the Cartesian-Newtonian worldview, which became dominant in Europe about 500 years ago. That way of thinking and seeing displaced a holistic indigenous worldview, which had been the foundation of most human societies before that time. The Cartesian-Newtonian worldview values linearity, smoothness, and efficiency. And in our education system, this translates into the factory model of education. Systems like this assume that work and order have to be imposed on students by teachers, and that teachers and schools themselves must be pressured from above to improve outcomes. Most of our reform efforts over the last 20 years were just tweaks to this factory model, bolting on new features and solutions here and there, but preserving the basic approach. Very few have focused on helping schools and districts reimagine how students learn and how educators teach and how schools can function differently within their communities. And as our guest today will tell us, the focus on high-stakes, test-based accountability made those kinds of radical change even harder. Several previous guests have described their work in the context of holistic indigenous systems, which work more like ecosystems and less like factories. The Prepared Project studied 70 schools and districts, all of which had chosen, long before COVID, to adopt or build learning models grounded in holistic Indigenous values. In this podcast, we're calling these human-centered learning models. They're grounded in deep relationships. They emphasize holistic well-being and development for both young people and educators. They encourage young people to own their own learning, to embrace complexity and failure as part of the learning process and to engage in real-world learning and problem-solving. Most critically, as we'll hear from two of our guests today, Nicole Allard and Andy Calkins, the programs in the Prepared Project were already teaching the adults in the system to develop and demonstrate the same attributes they wanted students to demonstrate. The success of these programs illustrates what's becoming clearer in the field of education as a whole, that change in human-centered systems like schools doesn't happen in response to increased pressure from the outside. It happens by creating conditions that invite change from within. 
these deeper changes then radiate outwards at all levels, ultimately transforming the system as a whole. This kind of approach is a pretty radical departure from the way most schools and districts operate, but it turns out to be exactly what was needed to navigate the upheaval of a global pandemic. We're going to learn more about how these systems are created and operate from Nicole, who is Executive Director of Educational Excellence and Innovation at Vista Unified School District, and Andy, Co-Director at Next Generation Learning Challenges. We'll hear from them in just a minute. But first, we're going to hear from Stuart Hudson of the Lowenstein Foundation, the funder that supported the PREPARE project, about a particular feature of the project. It turns out that determining what made some schools more prepared to deal with the pandemic was too broad a mission for a single organization. Rather than miss the chance to explore this important question or strain a single nonprofit, Lowenstein devised a grant that required nine organizations to collaborate in new and deep ways. This process of incentivizing partnership reminded me of Deanna James in episode six, when she described how she shifted her organization's funding so that individual nonprofits would be encouraged to collectively take on larger projects in service of their community. It's becoming clear that the kind of deep work needed to change our education system will require organizations to collaborate across silos, leveraging their strengths in partnership with others. Nonprofits will have to unlearn an instinct to compete for dollars. As Stuart notes, funders will have to think differently about goals, timelines, outcomes, and impact. And they'll have to accept that the outcomes of complex projects can't be mandated or predicted. They'll shift and change as partners and communities work together to find workable solutions in a dynamic world. This less directive grant-making can be uncomfortable for funders, but it's necessary for any real evolution in the field. Stuart, thanks so much for being here today. So I'd love to hear from you a little bit about the project. What was its genesis? You know, why did you choose it? Well, thanks for asking. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, During uh, this COVID experience, or as it it began, actually, uh, they were saying, well, okay, we know what the challenges are. What are the opportunities? Because wouldn't it be horrible if we didn't ask the question, what are the opportunities? And that led to another question, which is, well, what will prepare schools to find those opportunities in the midst of this horrific tragedy? And that's part of what attracted us to this project. So it's unusual to find projects that intentionally fund collaborations of nonprofits because it makes it harder for funders to measure impact in traditional ways, right? How do you parse apart the impact of each individual organization, for example? So what were the outcomes you hoped would come out of this project? How did you define impact? And then how did you go about measuring those? Well, that's a great question because initially we were hesitant. You know, the first thing you ask when you're a funder in education and looking at a proposal that says we want to work with 10 other organizations is you think, well, who's going to manage those relationships? You know, that doesn't just happen automatically. So we had discussions about that with Next Generation Learning Challenges and became convinced that they had the ability to do that. There was another thing that is is hard to judge, which is the collegiality that existed. We knew some of the organizations, we knew some of the individuals, but not all of them. And it's a bit of a leap of faith to think that people are going to play nice with each other because nonprofits, you know, compete. Uh, They have to compete for attention, for dollars, but there's a lot of collegiality 
you asked another aspect of this, which was, well, how are you going to look at impact from that involvement of a group? Uh, one is to see, and we could deduce this from the interim reports, are you getting good ideas from people? Uh, are you getting challenging ideas? Uh, you know, you don't want this to be a, a yes session where people are just trying to agree with each other. And so that became evident as we go. And the last part of impact is that none of the content matters if it doesn't get out, if it doesn't lead to action. And so the the real benefit of the group in that regard is how each of these groups had their own networks to use for disseminating the content. And it was agreed they would do so at the beginning of this effort, not at the very end. So it's interesting you, you talked about the interim reports, I was part of some meetings at the start of the project. And it was clear even then that there were some great ideas coming from different perspectives that didn't always align. And so there was a lot that needed to be worked through and agreed upon. So how flexible did you as a funder and then the collaborators on this project need to be about how things played out? Well, I wonder if you applied truth serum to the people who were leading the project on the nonprofit side, what they'd say. But I can tell you what we aspire to. And this is born from my having worked on the nonprofit side as well as the philanthropic side. Uh, I've been a funder of education in a previous uh, position with a foundation, and I knew what I thought was useful and what was not useful in terms of what the foundations want. And so what we thought is we need to monitor, as a foundation should, how the project's unfolding, are things being done on time. Uh, we needed to learn. That's the other thing. This is a learning experience for us as well. And so as it unfolded, we had what I would like to say is frequent enough communication, quarterly reports. We didn't ask for lots and lots of pages. And we said, if you've got something to share with us, good, bad, or otherwise, in between, please don't hesitate. So I think that developed kind of an informality uh, about communication while at the same time preserving our ability to monitor and, and, and see what was going on with the project. So I want to talk a little bit about the ways conventional philanthropy is set up. Um, as you mentioned, and as I noticed when I was a nonprofit leader, it does tend to pit organizations against each other because each of them feels like they're fighting for a limited pool of funding. Um, it felt like it incentivized organizations to think in kind of narrow and siloed ways about their work because they're trying to fit funders' strategies and you know funding areas. And it rarely incentivizes, I think, big, bold ideas that require actors from different parts of the education ecosystem to come together and contribute to a bigger vision. Does, does this resonate with you? Definitely. And there were some difficulties that we had to think through and then work through. They weren't uh, enormous or overwhelming. Uh, some of the groups that were part of this um, cooperative effort were also grantees of ours, too. Some were not. And some uh, that were not uh, were very important players in this. I think there's two things going on in philanthropy that are interesting and uh, were relevant to our process. One is a very important and, and well-timed discussion about how you can involve more of your grantees or prospective grantees in the decision-making, not just about specific grants, but really about your strategy and how it's formed. And you have to be careful how you do that because you also, as a foundation, have some responsibility for making sure your grants are delivering what they're supposed to be delivering. 
So we moved immediately, even before COVID, to have a shorter requirement in terms of material and information and pages uh, of reports. Uh, I think with regard to how the groups were working together, uh, you know, we checked in on that, you know, once in a while. And I think when there were groups that wanted to approach us in terms of soliciting an opportunity to get a grant, we made it clear what those situations were versus discussions about this project. And I think that acknowledges and respects the the very obvious thing that when you are a philanthropist, people are going to ask you for money. I know that's a shocking admission, but that's part of the business. And I think at the same time, we can involve people in our process uh, without seeming to believe that the decisions are going to be made by others. Mm. Thanks. That's really helpful. So one of the ideas that emerged in the final prepared report was that if we want to move to an education system that's designed to be centered on human beings, that's really designed to unfold each individual's potential, you need to change lots of different levels of the system in ways that mirror each other. If students need strong, authentic relationships, purposeful work that meets their needs, adaptability, then educators need to experience authentic relationship, purposeful work, and the ability to be adaptive. And then that requires district offices and policies that reflect those same values. So then what does that require for how foundations and funders themselves do the work? And to its credit, I think the field is looking internally, right? How how do we think about our own work? How are we equity driven? But what does it mean then internally for how funders do their work? Well, I think we do need to be very mindful, not just of how we're spending our time, but how we are asking other people to spend their time, not just grantees, policymakers, teachers, the people we interact with. I would say one thing that we've learned, I'll admit it as a learning, is how important it is to really get as close as you can to what's happening in schools. COVID took away site visits. We obviously make grants to intermediate organizations, and there's a lot of smart people in those organizations. But I think I've always learned more just by sitting and listening to teachers talk about their day and to listen to kids when you can get it into more of an informal setting that's more human and not as strange as site visits are. So I think getting getting close to what's happening is, is a very critical and important thing. We have people who are leading in schools, leading in classrooms, who are pretty sure they know what works and what doesn't. But it's not always because they're going to unload a bunch of data that supports their perspective. And I learned how important it is to push for student outcomes, whether that's uh, academic outcomes, cognitive abilities, whether it's uh, social-emotional learning, any aspect of what we're looking at now. Um, But also, there is still room for, okay, how do you do something well? So proving something works, how do you do something well? Both are important. So that was a learning or a relearning, if you will, uh, about this. Um, I think also just kind of how data and research in education gets into action, leads to innovation. And certainly data is good but it's only one aspect of why change happens in education. The other reason is because sometimes common sense prevails. For example, I think feeding school kids is a good thing, and I'm pretty sure their learning improves when they've been fed. And do you need to have a data set on that? Or does common sense and teacher wisdom 
or parent wisdom or kid wisdom tell you it's that's what's going to happen yes you know i I think we've tried so hard in the interest of equity and racial justice to prevent the bad things that we know human beings are capable of in terms of bias or low expectations, that we've tried to take the humanity out of the system and make it super objective. And of course, that works in some contexts, but certainly not a human-centered one um, like an education system. Great point, yes. Um, what I heard you say is, is I think, is process plus outcomes. So we often tend to focus on the outcomes, but we're not really caring about the process of how someone got there. And so really, we need to be thinking about both in a way that hasn't necessarily happened, where I get a final report and I look at the numbers, but I don't necessarily know what led people there. And if the experience in between was really awful, um, in which case it might not, the outcomes might not be great, um, for example. Well, you know, um, every once in a while, simplicity is truly a virtue and you think what's the simplest way you might look at as a philanthropy getting into education what problem are you trying to solve what are the available solutions to solving that problem what's missing from philanthropy because remember there's other philanthropists that might already be invested in a solution and then after you decide how you're going to move forward and get involved then it's kind of like how did it how did how'd it go you know what problem are you trying to solve? What are the solutions? What's missing from philanthropy? And then how did it go? But you also asked a multidimensional question a moment ago, and I feel like I didn't answer one part of it, which is the stick to that's required to make change in education. The timeline is a little longer than some people are patient with. And so, for example, multi-year grants should be a very obvious thing. But for some philanthropists, it's not something they're used to. Uh, maybe there's a different kind of philanthropy where you're building a hospital wing or something, and the construction period is going to be less than a year. But for systemic change, you've got to go into it understanding it's going to take time. And I think that's uh, another part of what you were inquiring about, and I would very much agree. It, it takes time, and you need to be reminded of that. That's great. Stuart, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for being here. Andy and Nicole, it's great to have you join us. Thank you, Olka. Great to be here. So I'd love for both of you to start by sharing a bit about how you got here as people, um, why you do the work you do, why you're committed to it every day, uh, particularly because it can be hard times. So I'll start with you, Nicole. Great question. Um, So this is almost my 25th year in education, and every year I'm challenged by new students and new opportunities um, to dig into who students are, what they know, and how we give them opportunities to demonstrate their learnings and to grow as learners and as people, to really know who they are and what they're doing. And I was challenged a number of years ago to kind of redesign a traditional high school to really allow for that space for students. And it was probably the most exciting work I've ever done. And I am constantly um, looking to support schools in our district as they move towards that model of being a really student-centered organization and really looking at the whole parts of our students and not just kind of isolating data points that some traditional schools look at. 
Hmm. And in doing that, are you kind of replicating an educational experience you had, or is it really different from your own it, path? I think it's very different. I think a lot of educators had very traditional experiences, and, and a lot of us learned how to play the game of school at a very young age and continued that and found success in traditional schooling. And so it's a kind of both exciting and terrifying space for us because it it's not something that we ourselves knew about, or even especially in the area uh geographical area that I'm in is being done at other schools. It's just not being done. So it's kind of this unknown space, which is scary, but super exciting because it's limitless in terms of what we're capable of doing. And it's a lot about listening to students of what they want their experience to be and also understanding the world and what they're expecting of our students. Because what the world expects when our students become employees and workers is not necessarily what traditional schooling is preparing them to do. I, it's, it, that's an easy answer because I, I'm, I'm here because I get to be lucky enough to work with people like the two of you. I mean, honestly. And, and, and when I say that, little did I know, you know, going through the Cleveland Public Schools, so many years ago, and my father moving us into Cleveland so he could run for the board of ed and saying, education is the is the profession that makes all other professions possible. You know, so it's the root stem. And and so three out of my four siblings, you know, are 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 involved in education also. And we all sort of grew up with this sense of social purpose that has only expanded over the years. Um to the point where I, I most days feel like the work that is happening across public education in this country and everywhere, you know, has the like has the future of the planet at stake. It, it, it's that important. Agree. So we are here today to talk about the What Made Them So Prepared project and to kind of think about it in two different ways. First, in terms of the work and the learnings of the project. And Nicole, you know, you're among the the kind of folks that rose to the surface. And then also to think about the, the sort of structure of the project and the way that it was done and the implications for that for how funders might want to be thinking moving forward about different ways of helping the field to kind of transform and grow into something new. So let's start with you, Andy. Could you tell us a bit about how the prepared project emerged as an idea? Yeah, I, um, and I, it's, a, it's a, an instrumental story, I think. There was a group of about 20 or 24 nonprofits um, in our space, student-centered, deeper, experiential, next-gen learning, who began to gather in the months after March 2020, um, partly just out of like group therapy, you know, let's get together every late Friday afternoon and have some beers and like talk with each other, but partly because we were all gripped by the conviction that there was something that we should be doing to be useful in this moment. You know, it, it wasn't really necessarily working with schools because they were all in a, in a tizzy trying to reinvent everything they were doing. Um, but uh, after a few months of conversation and, and the development of several other projects that came out of that group, which we called the all in this together coalition, nine of us, um, organizations got together and said, we're all hearing from schools and districts in our networks who 
um, told us that, yes, things were chaotic and they were having to reinvent everything and, 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 uh, and they, they didn't feel unprepared for this. Uh, and, and neither did their faculties and, and neither did most of their kids. Uh, and this was at a time when looking around at the landscape of public education, mostly what we were hearing and seeing was this chorus of, we are waiting for guidance. You know, some, somebody, the state, the feds, you know, our board to, to like tell us where to go and what to do. And, uh, it felt to us that this, this narrative about what made some schools and districts feel more prepared for this like crucible of challenge that the pandemic represented. That was a narrative that needed to be told. And, and so we banded together and happily got um, the Lowenstein Foundation to fund it. Why was it valuable to have nine organizations as opposed to just asking each one to do it separately? As a general principle, we subscribe and always have um, to that you know that old African proverb to to go fast, go go alone, and to go far, go together. And and we have found over the years that by going together, almost everything NGLC has ever done has been in partnership with other groups. Um, the work product has has improved. Um, and, and we have improved. We've learned from each other. Um, and in the moment of the pandemic, all of these organizations uh, seemed readier, and I think this is still true, to engage in a level of vulnerable partnership activity that they might not have been ready to do before that. You know, a combination of extreme crisis and conviction of about wanting to be part of a solution that so that the whole of our work could be greater than the sum of our various parts. Mm -hmm. You know, we all felt that nobody really needed to be persuaded. Uh, and I think that is still true right now. I, I think uh, funders in your group, Elka, may be seeing and observing or hearing some of this, that, you know, where we used to be friendly, you know, co-op-editors co 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 with each other, you know, comp uh, and, and there are funder dynamics that drive some of that where, uh, you know, we're, we're all competing to find the Venn diagram between funder priorities and our own priorities. Uh, and yet right now is the moment for funders to help, help leverage what we're just seeing and what we saw enacted in in this project, much deeper willingness to say, yep, you know, we'll bring what we have. This is like a stone soup moment. We're going to throw it all in there and it's going to be way better because we're doing this together. That's great. Thanks. So, Nicole, I want to bring you in as we dig a bit um, into the findings of the report, because there were certainly common themes um, that emerged and that you all have captured really well um, on your website and your reports. I wanted to read just a couple of quotes, because I think they they sort of say something about what we're about to talk about. So, 
Somebody said, culture and relationships, by far, I assume, were, were important. If we did not have that in place and students didn't feel empowered and trusted prior to the pandemic, we would have had less success in the pivot. Families, students, and staff have said many times that our strength and focus on community and social and emotional support is what helped us pivot quickly and successfully. And then another quote was, culture among the staff was crucial for persevering through so many changes and plans over the last 13 months. As a leader, I invested heavily in taking care of staff needs so they could in turn take care of student needs. Students who felt connected to an adult on campus did well in the distance learning environment. So, Nicole, tell us a little bit about, you know, how this played out in VISTA. And I'd love it if you could dig a little bit more into some of these words, right? Relationship and culture. I think people hear the words and they understand them in their own frame and context. But based on your own experience as a professional in your own career, what you know of colleagues, how did that play out in VISTA and what's important to know about that? That's such a powerful conversation. So I'm excited that that's my question to dig into. So what we found in our district, because obviously even within districts that are doing really innovative work, there are schools in different phases of that work. So what we found in our in our schools that were most prepared to do this was the idea of culture and relationships, which you touched on. So just to dig into that a little bit more. Teacher culture is really important. So our schools that did well in this pivoting that were almost excited by this opportunity to reinvent were schools that had that mindset that they are constantly adapting to the needs of the world and the needs of their students and schools that are extremely flexible in how they operate. And that adaptivity and that flexibility really helped schools whose teachers were okay feeling vulnerable, that they were going to try something And it was okay if that failed and they needed to go back to the design thinking process and do some more noticing and empathizing and do some more redesign in order to prototype and bring something else. Schools that had that mindset that that's just who we are, we are constantly in the design thinking process and nothing is set and nothing is done adapted much better to this new environment. And then when you talk about that's part of the culture. When you also talk about the culture of the community of students and parents, schools that were prepared when COVID hit and we all of a sudden pivoted to fully, you know, um, distance learning and then came back and did a hybrid or different options were those students who had, or those schools who had a high level of connectivity that their students felt connected to adults on campus in meaningful and authentic ways not felt connected to to teachers like, oh, I have someone who checks on me and says hi, but teachers who really listen to what I'm saying, that help me co-design experiences, that help me co-create my learning, that you are you have a culture where you are truly listening to what students are saying and the needs that they have and also what parents are saying. So we took the opportunity when March happened and we knew we were fully pivoted for the rest of the year. When that happened, it was, let's turn and start to redesign what it looks like in August. And when we did that, we had 22 community forums. We had surveys for students, for staff, for parents. We had 14,000 voices 
that helped us create what it looked like when we came back to school. And we were in the practice of listening to them. And so it really was a community project that we all came together and said, what are your needs? What are your wants? What's working? We looked at March, April, May as kind of the beta. We're trying it out and what isn't working so that we can redesign that for the future. Um, And we just all, the schools and the districts that did well just had that mindset of being able to adapt and be flexible and to listen. There's something interesting in what you just said, because there was both uh, responding to the immediate crisis and looking further out all at the same time. And I think what we were hearing in the reports and what we hear from people now is so many people, Andy, to what you said, were sort of stuck and they could they could barely even do what needed to be done in the immediate moment, let alone kind of look further ahead. And I'm curious from both of your perspectives, you know, what sets the stage for that? Like, what was the work that allowed people to develop those dispositions, the mindsets, the sort of muscles of this kind of flexible adaptivity that they obviously put into, you know, into practice during the pandemic. I think Andy's pointing at me. So we'll talk about um, at our district and it's through the work that we were able to do with Andy and the power of networks. You touched on that, Olka. There is so much strength in having networks for schools. And, you know, Andy's organization helps provide those networks. We did a lot of work on transformation design and we did that with schools across or districts across the country. And so when you're in that mode of transforming, transforming isn't a product, it is a process. And so no school or district looks and says, oh, we've transformed, let's move on. And so I think when we see um, things that could be obstacles and what other districts as as something that caused them to freeze and just react, we look at them as opportunities to not just react to the immediacy of the moment, but also be proactive. And what are the positive unintended consequences that can come from this? Um, Can this really affect how we assess students? All of a sudden now we're looking at the importance of care connection and well-being in our assessments or the importance of mastery or competency-based grading in assessments. Those conversations we were able to lean in on because of what we learned in those last three months. So if we only look at these opportunities as as times to react in order to provide something and we don't look at them as opportunities to proactively transform and continue to transform the experiences and opportunities we're asking for our students, we're we're losing a critical time. This is the perfect time in education to lean in on what wasn't working and to leverage COVID and what we've learned and what students need in order to make our schools and our districts and education in general better for students. So if you if you listen to what you just heard from Nicole and both both of your answers um, to Olka's questions. I, you're seeing you're seeing the theme of this project that mirrored really the theme of that three or four years of transformation design research that we did with Vista Unified and some other districts, which is that um, there's a lot of districts out there, and 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 actually in the report there's this visual of something we call the grand agreement that that suggests that uh, you know the researchers the employers the educators the parents everyone agrees right now about roughly the 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 whole pie of all the things that we care that kids develop 
you know, yes, literacy and numeracy, but also all those 21st century skills that I listed before. We all, we all get that. We all want that. There are some districts and schools out there that then also understand the profound implications of that vision for your learning model, because this learning model, the traditional pervasive one in schools, was not designed with, with that vision of success in mind. And, um, and then there's very, very few, but a growing number of schools and districts that understand the third part of this, which we think is the hallmark of the schools and districts that we studied in this project. And that is that they, as one of the leaders in the, in the survey told us, their vision and their model for learning is also their set of operating norms. You know, and they say, how could we imagine anything different if our if we want our kids to emerge as resilient, creative, collaborative, innovative problem solvers, how is that going to happen if the adults around them and the systems and structures and environments that we construct for them don't also reflect the same attributes? So one of the frames of this podcast is trying to take a deep look at some of the driving assumptions, values, and mental models of our dominant education system. We all talk about the industrial model of education, which is top-down, it's hierarchical, it has linear theories of change, and those are associated with more mechanical, man-made designs and systems. But the language you're both using, adaptive, flexible, dynamic, seems to be more ecological. It feels like they speak to a state of becoming rather than statically being a certain way. Does that resonate with you? And how does that shift your thinking in terms of your work, your focus? You know, one, one way to think about this, you all can mention the factory model, and that's sort of pervasively understood to be the thing that we're trying to move out of. Um, a question that several of these organizational partners and we have been grappling with for years is, what, what's the metaphor for what we're going to? Nature is the perfect metaphor for completely adaptive, networked, resilient systems. It, it's all around us, and yet we ignore all the lessons that it's telling us, right? And, and so, you know, we as human beings... Uh, we should be the species that understands that and, and understands that um, diversity is what makes nature work. You know, that's, that's what they learned when, you know, they reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone and it changed the course of the rivers because of the way all of the diverse species worked, worked together and all that. And to some degree, I think we do. And yet we we are all still living with systems that we developed when we were doing rows and rows of corn together. And, and so that's how our classrooms look and how our schools look. And it's how everybody imagines quote unquote school to look. And so we find it hard to move as a culture out of those constructs that have become so deeply rooted, but that's exactly what we've got to do without attacking them because there are elements in them that that still have merit and value you know every really really good teacher will still do some direct instruction sometimes it just doesn't have to dominate 88% of the time 
sort of piggyback off of you, the other thing that we need to look at and things that both you touched on was when you create your portrait of a student, because that's the work so many districts are doing right now, their, their portrait of a graduate. What do we want when students leave our district? And what does that look like in kindergarten or third grade or seventh grade or 12th grade? You cannot not also create a portrait of an adult and a portrait of your systems and structures because adult behavior needs to change in order to produce the students that we want to produce, right? And there has to be mindsets that we expect as an organization for our staff to be able to do that. And then our systems and structures are value statements. So if we truly are a mission-driven brand as a school or as a district, and we have our very important mission of providing this student-centered personal learning that is going to prepare them for the global economy, then what systems and structures are creating obstacles for that? And what systems and structures do we need to add in order to support it? I'm curious, what was the scope of the demographics in the programs that you found doing this work? I think sometimes people believe that the kind of work you're describing, these ways of operating, they work well for middle-class white students, but maybe don't work as well for students who might come from less privileged backgrounds because there's this perception that students from those kinds of backgrounds may need more structure, more focus on the basics, things that they might not get at home. Yeah, no, thank you for asking that. All nine of us have been very focused on making sure that we're working with communities um, of need. Um, so with very diverse populations, um, both racially and economically. Uh, and so as a result, when each of these organizations looked across its flock of, of schools and districts, um, a, a really diverse set of, of schools and districts emerged for this, um, for this report and this project. It just reflects who we've all been working with for the last nine or 10 years. But I want to talk about equity because we have been hearing this in a lot of our funder conversations, this tension between the theory of improvement and theory of change that drove the standards and accountability movement, which was if you don't have standards that are more rigid and more, you know, um, uniform, then you are going to have certain sets of students who are not well served. And the, the data from No Child Left Behind helped illuminate that. On the other hand, we are hearing more and more demand from communities that we have culturally responsive practice, that we have accountability systems that really recognize what it is that individual communities say is important for their children, and this kind of need to personalize, but not personalize in a, we're going to get you all to the same place with the same stuff, but you can do it on a laptop or with a, you know, with a, a notebook or sitting on a chair or sitting on a couch, right? Or at different paces, but really personalized. Since I know that both of you are deeply committed to equity, racial justice, how do you grapple with that? How do we still preserve the intent behind the uniformity um, while still allowing the system to become living and dynamic? So at our district, uh, we adopted the National Equity Project definition of equity, which is that every student gets what they need in order to develop to their own social and academic potential. So one part is it's both. It's not just their academic potential, but it's also their social potential. Two is it's different students need different things um, because every student has different potential and different supports that they need to get there, right? So they don't all need the same box to look over the same fence. Some don't need a box at all and some need multiple boxes. And until as a society, we're able to remove that fence completely, 
and liberate that whole situation, we are going to give students support. So that's one of the things that we look at or as an organization is how are we reaching individual students, but not by watering down curriculum, not by lowering standards, because that's not giving students what they need as well. And that's underserving a lot of our populations that deserve a lot more from from our schools. So how do we as schools and districts maintain a level of rigor, expectation and outcomes while at the same time providing support for students. And what we found at Vista Unified goes back to what you first started talking about, Oko, which is relationships. And so when students feel connected, when students have relationships, when students feel a meaning and purpose in their work, when they're connected, when they don't see school as an isolating eight hours that has no effect on their life outside, no connection to their family, their culture, their dreams, their aspirations. And what we found at the school that I worked at is that was our big core focus for three or four years with strengths, interests, values, work, meaning and purpose, authentic, rigorous, relevant experiences for our students. We did not talk about standardized testing once. We subtracted that conversation so that we made space and time and resources to have the conversation about the connection and relationship for students. And what we found at the end of those is that our test scores actually went up uh, to the point where we had the highest test scores in the county. And demographically, we didn't look like some of those other schools in the county. And it's because our students felt connected, not just to their teachers, but to their school community and also to what they were learning, that there was meaning and purpose in what they were doing. Oh my gosh! Did I just love that whole response? Um, and and I, let me let me let me um, rephrase what you just said, Nicole, in NGLC's speak, um, which is that you um, what you just heard was an embrace of of both with and a rejection of either or, um, and an understanding that um, there are some strategies you need to take in order to help your community do the same thing. And when I say all that, I mean, there, you know, in, in education, like many sectors, we have a tendency to lean really far on one side of the boat and then, oh my gosh, it's getting tippy. Let's run all the way over to the other side of the boat. And then, oh my gosh, it's getting tippy, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, that's what the reading wars are all about and the math wars and, and, and so on. And, and, and this is, perilously the same conversation. There's so much testing fatigue out there that there, there's a, 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 a growing clamor to say, can we just like be done with all of that? It, it, it has messed up too many schools and too many kids and let's just be done with it. Nicole is saying, um, we're, we're, we're still using that stuff. There is a value in, in those kinds of assessments. They have been overvalued. Um, by our assessment and accountability system so that now that's what everybody thinks of when they think of measurement and assessment. When in fact, there is a full spectrum of measurement strategies that we all know as human beings, if you ask anybody out there how they know they were getting better at something that they're pretty good at, they won't say, well, there was a bubble test I took, you know, once a quarter. They will, they will give you this rich answer that includes lots of different forms of performance-based assessment, although they may not use that phrase, right? And so um, 
that's where we need to get to. Not not a rejection of what we just did in standards and accountability 1.0, but an understanding that there are elements in all of that that we can build on and we should build on and they have value. But now we know enough to be able to move to a 2.0 version where we see that it is literacy and numeracy and everything that that whole child readiness for the 21st century entails. And um, that that means using a whole additional suite of measurements, most of which aren't appropriate for use in accountability systems, um, but they are the most useful sources of information our educators in our networks tell us in terms of helping them understand what each individual learner needs and where he or she needs to go next. Right. And so I, you know, it's, it's, it's helping us move past this pell-mell rush from one side to the other side and understanding that, that we are capable of learning from what we just did over the last 25 years and now doing the better version of it that is more nuanced and more complex in the same way that youth and, and, and human being and brain development is complex. Do you think we can take our existing systems and just modify them? Or do you think we need to carve out intentional space for people who are working in places like Vista and other places in this project to design totally new systems? I mean, does the DNA of the existing set of systems defy tinkering? Hmm. That's, that is the big question to end all questions, um, Olka. Uh, and I, I, where I am right now on that question is different from where I was even five years ago before we launched into this latest round of research and went deep with places like Vista. I, I did not think this level of change was going to be possible given the systems and policies in place and the structures in the, the district bureaucratic model. I now see that there are, in fact, a, a, a number of examples out there of districts that have made this work um, in the ways that we've been talking about here. Uh, you know, so that that model, that future is here. It's just woefully unevenly distributed. And to me, that means the systems do need to change far enough so that they do what you just pointed to. They, they allow visibly much more room for districts and schools to explore and experiment and take the risks that places like Vista have been taking, often in the face of regulations and policies and everything else that said, but, but wait, you have to do it this way. The, the founding impulse that's been at the root of so much um, school, public school policymaking in this country is, is risk mitigation. I mean, even the phrase, no child left behind, let, let's, let's mitigate the risk that there will be any victims of our public education system. Um, and what that does is eliminate everyone's incentive to do the kind of work you've been hearing Nicole talk about here. Mm. Right. And so if the systems can do that and open themselves up and say, we get it, this is far more complex than our 1.0 version of accountability was ready to, to promote. Then you've got space for the very large number 
of district and school leaders and educators and school board members and community members who are coming out of COVID feeling urgency, you know, seeing an opportunity, understanding that there are the vistas in the world to learn from and, and every, all those crossing lines tell them that this is a moment if we're just allowed and enabled and encouraged to do that. We're hearing a lot about the need to kind of think about asset-based language and framing of students of communities, right? In a sense, you're saying, let's do an asset-based vision of what the system can be, as opposed to the kind of risk uh, risk management, um, risk mitigation one. So we're coming to the end. I want to ask just one more question. How did you define impact for this project, Andy? And how did you and the other organizations understand and think about the impact that you had collectively and or individually, if you were still feeling a little bit of the usual uh, kind of impulses um, that philanthropy has sometimes furthered? Thank you for asking that question, because there was one of the deepest exploration roads that we went on with all nine partners here was around that question. Um, we we are all guilty, um, I think, of sometimes um, uh, um, creating a, a, a creating a, a sort of a class of cool kids, you know. Um, even in the ways I'm talking about Vista in this podcast, you know, it, it make people say, "Oh, well, that's that's good for those guys." And and we had a long discussion with all nine partners. This was true vulnerable thought partnership with arguing and back and forth and so on, you know, where we were saying, how is this going to land in the field constructively? So that, you know, people who are already feeling pretty gloomy, especially this winter and spring coming out of Omicron and the, the third year of madness over all this, uh, they're going to look at this project and, um, and say, well, bully for them, these 70 schools and districts, all of this is just making me feel even gloomier. Thank you very much for that. And, and so what we came upon was um, an understanding, and I think this came from our interviews with a number of the people in it. You know, they would all say, um, we're, we're not unicorns here. Um, at, at, at every district and every school out there has the same stories of collaborative, innovative, resilient problem solving that we're just talking with you about. But those stories are all swamped right now under, under a narrative of disarray and gloom. Uh, and now that pot is being stirred further with all of this controversy about CRT and everything else. And, and so, uh, what we determined was that we would have the best impact if, if very broadly, and we'll be working on this for the next year to two years, what emerged was a, um, a, you know, a version of this narrative to compete with the one that said, that says that whole experience was awful and we need to go back to something that feels safe and familiar and comfortable. And, and instead have this narrative be, you know, we've all got uh, these stories of of high capacity response, 
Um, let's identify them. What did they look like in our own community, in our own environment? Let's understand why those things turned out that way. And then let's use them as the building blocks to help them become the operating norms that we see have developed in places like Vista. That's all that they did. You know, they, they start with small cycles, solving definable problems, but they do it in a different way that is more inclusive and more iterative. And then those muscles build on top of themselves until that becomes the way we do things here in Vista. So everyone has, this is totally what you just said, Alka, about taking a strengths and asset based view towards, towards this change. It's no different than the way we think about really good, strong learner strategies. The picture you're painting prompts the question, how do we do this for more kids more quickly? Our approach historically has been to scale interventions, right? If you're a funder, you find someplace that has an intervention and you want them to scale it as quickly as they can to serve more kids or more communities. But what you're describing doesn't feel scalable. It feels like it's spreading practices and ways of being or ways of engaging in the work of education. And that feels beyond the scope of any one organization to do all over the country, right? No matter how brilliant your staff and team are. So what have you learned from this project about funding coalitions of organizations to do something impactful, meaningful, deeper, and longer term? I think Andy's probably better poised to answer, but I'll just say this. As much as we listen to our students and our families and our teachers when we design, it's so important for funders to listen to what's happening at school sites and districts. And when they see that, you know, kind of nugget of goodness um, to instead of immediately say, let's scale this across to understand that everybody's unique and and to understand the power of, of creating that space and that network for people, um, but to not predefine what that space and network looks like, but instead to have those definitions and and conversations organically come up from the people who are doing the work. There's a, a, a guy many of your listeners will know named David Albury, who is at the innovation unit in the UK. He said to me in a conversation last year uh, that ecosystems aren't led uh, they have leaders, and 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 that's one way to understand an answer to your question. Uh, um, when we think about scale, that carries so much baggage from its industrial era roots. It is linear and managed, and it's often something that the protagonist does to everybody who's being scaled, right? And. And you end up with predictable results. And, and, and if the result that you're looking for now is a new generation of resilient, innovative, self-directed problem solvers, you're not going to get there that way. It is an ecosystem filled with all kinds of complexity and ind individual bodies making individual decisions. And so the answer here is, is not scale. It is an invitation to lead an invitation to districts and communities and people to reconnect with what they know about what powerful learning is, what we hope for out of school for our kids who are going to graduate, what we know about how, how we came to understand that we were getting good at something, all these sort of 
personal truths, right? That we get through our own learned experience. And, and then um, do that reimagining with the space permitted to us by the systems, hopefully, um, to, to help our schools reflect all of that knowledge and, and, and bring us you know, beyond in a 2.0 version what we just experimented with in the whole 20-year 1.0 version of standards. It, it's not pushing it away, but it is sure learning from it and then moving to a substantially different and um, and and a um, and a more powerful and more timely version that delivers to this country the new generation of problem solvers that we clearly need. Thank you. Nicole Allard and Andy Culkins, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk with you today. Likewise, Alka, always a pleasure. Thank you. Great conversation. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.